Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 through 17, and also chapter 11, verses 17 through 26. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. Now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word of the Lord. What we said a few weeks ago on life and community, you guys just didn't want to stop talking with each other and greeting each other. So next time we'll see some holy kissing happening maybe. <laughs> That's an inside joke. Sorry, try not to do that. That's from a couple weeks ago. Um, to begin the year, we're in a series called Liturgy for Life. One of my non-negotiable life liturgies that I probably have already shared with you more than you even want to hear about. I do have other liturgies in my life, but it's the first thing that I do every single morning. I get my cup of coffee, I make it, and I drink it. That's the first thing I do every single morning. My wife, Amelia, likes to tell the story of how serious that I am about this. Whenever, whenever we get the chance to share it. When we were living in Orlando, a hurricane came through, Hurricane Charlie. And it came right over, pretty much right over where we were living. Knocked out all power. There was mass destruction. The roads were closed everywhere. But the next day when we woke up, I had no way to make coffee. It was a crisis. So we said, so we've got, got to do this. It's, it's not, it's not up, up for question. This is a non-negotiable. So we went out and ventured out and found one of the McDonald's that had a generator. So they were making food and coffee. And so I don't know when, there's probably not been a day that I can remember that I haven't started my day with that liturgy. It's a non-negotiable. What about on Sunday when the church gathers like we are this morning? What is a non-negotiable according to the Bible? And why? And that's what we've been doing to begin the year. We've been looking at each part of our liturgy and asking why. 
Why does God have us do this week in and week out? And how can we expect to meet him and be renewed in each part of the service? We're also looking at our Sunday liturgy and asking, how does each part of the liturgy provide for us a model, a template for our daily and weekly liturgies as we live our Monday through Saturday lives? so that they might be more centered on Jesus. This morning, we're looking at a part of our liturgy that at Trinity, we observe every other week. Something that during the height of the pandemic, we were not able to observe. We were without it for a while, and later we could only celebrate it irregularly. Of course, I'm talking about communion or the Lord's Supper. A book I was reading this week asked this question, if your church stopped, if our church stopped celebrating the Lord's Supper, what difference would it make to your life? Think about that. And I would add, I mean, we have some experience with this, having gone through what we've gone through. Did it or does it make any difference in my life that that COVID and all the pandemic realities disrupted my ability to partake of this meal? Were we missing anything? And we can think about that question honestly. Did we miss it? Have we been missing it during all this disruption? Is this meal a non-negotiable? And would we miss it if it wasn't a part of our liturgy? This question of whether the Lord's Supper is a non-negotiable part of our liturgy for a church and for every Christian is actually very Easy. It's an easy question to answer based on the text that we just heard read together. There are a lot of gray areas in the Bible as to what we're supposed to do when we gather together, exactly what it's supposed to look like. What do we do when we do a call to worship? Read a scripture, pray, or sing a song? There's freedom. What about instruments? What kinds? Should we have drums, etc.? There's freedom there. How long should a sermon be? I think in Acts somewhere it says at least 45 minutes. I think I read that. (laughs) But the Lord's Supper, as a part of our liturgy, is crystal clear. Three of the Gospels record Jesus having his last meal with his disciples before he died, and they tell us that he told them very clearly, do this, do this, do this. And here in our passage... Chapter 11, verse 24, Paul quotes Jesus saying, do this in remembrance of me. Do it. So it's not optional for Christians. We are given instructions and told by Jesus, this is what we are to do. But why? What happens that is so important and non-negotiable that Jesus was very clear to say, this, out of all things that I'm telling you, this you need to do. Now, there's no way in one sermon to cover the meaning and the importance of the Lord's Supper. So this morning, it'll be an overview for sure. But we'll be looking at the one place in the Bible that we just heard read, 1 Corinthians, that unpacks the meaning and the significance probably more than any other place in the Bible. The other places, we just are hearing the narrative. We are being told that this is what Jesus did with his disciples. Here, the meaning is being unpacked. Now, before we dig into it, first, 1 Corinthians. We're just jumping into this letter. What is it? What's going on here? Well, there's a lot. This is a letter 
of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. And this church was a church that he himself started, but it had all kinds of issues, both in the personal lives of the people and in the church as a whole, as a community. There were many things happening that were out of line and out of step with their faith in Jesus Christ. And if we had time, we'd dig into the city of Corinth. It was a cosmopolitan. It was a crazy place. All kinds of things were happening there. It had a reputation, kind of like what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth kind of a thing like we have with Vegas. That's the kind of place it was. And so this church had come to faith in Jesus. These people had come to hear the message of the gospel. They'd become Christians, but they had not broken away using the language of our series from many of their Corinthian liturgies, so to speak. They're patterns of living. So as you read the letter, you find out they were suing each other over their conflicts. They were divided and disagreeing over all kinds of things that weren't all that important. Paul says here in verse 18, there are divisions among you. We read later that their gatherings got out of control, like crazy things were happening and nobody knew what to expect when they got together. So their liturgy, their Sunday liturgies were quite out of control. We read that their sexual lives were not aligned with Jesus' teaching. And they were still participating in meals that were connected to the worship of idols. And so if you read 1 Corinthians, you'll see Paul talking about all of these things. But here, in chapters 10 and 11, Paul shows them how this meal, the Lord's Supper, is a counter-liturgy to give them a new pattern out of their faith in Jesus Christ that can transform all of these areas of life and more in this eating and drinking that happens here. Now, that's context and background. What I want to do before we jump into this passage is zoom out because we can't understand this text. We can't understand the Lord's Supper fully unless we first understand the meaning and the significance of eating and drinking with other people in the culture of the Bible and the culture of this time, which is very, very different than in our culture. For us, eating and drinking, it can be all about the food. Foodies, we have foodies here. What do you take pictures of? You take pictures of the food. And most often when we see pictures of food, we don't see anything about who you're eating with. If we see them, like we see this part of them because like the plate is right there. We just see their stomachs. And often, we're not even eating with other people. We're eating breakfast in our cars. We're doing working lunches and that sort of thing as we're getting stuff done. So food often is just the fuel for our lives. But in the culture of the Bible, of the Old and New Testament, eating and drinking with other people or not eating and drinking with other people was one of the most significant aspects of life. To eat and to drink with someone meant, I accept you. I approve of you. We are in unity with each other. We are close. We have obligations to one another and it was also a way that you reconciled to other people if you were at odds. All that happened simply by eating and drinking with other people. So the Jewish people of the time, 
would never eat with non-Jewish people or Gentiles. Faithful Jewish people of Jesus' day would never eat with even a fellow Jew who they thought was living an unrighteous life. To eat and drink with them would mean I'm approving of your life. I'm approving of your faith and your status with God. And when you ate together, you shared the same status. That's what it symbolized. You're saying we share the same status spiritually and before God. So this is why in this week's CBR reading, if you're following along in the reading of the book of Acts, Jesus had to appear to the apostle Peter in a vision and tell him three times, go, eat, go, eat, go, eat with somebody who was not Jewish. Peter told Jesus, no, (laughs) no, because he'd never done that. And Jesus said, yes, this is okay. That's how deeply ingrained it was and how meaningful it was to eat and drink with another person. And when you start looking, if you were to just search this in the Bible, you'll find eating and drinking everywhere, and you see it in our liturgy. If you turn to page 2, you can follow along again with what we've already read in our worship. Isaiah 55, the call to worship, is an invitation to come to God, to receive the offer as, uh, of His grace. And it's pictured, how? As a feast, as eating and drinking with Him. Luke chapter 5, our call to confession is just one example of the many times that Jesus is having a meal with other people in the Gospels and how his meals with others called, it caused a lot of shock in some people. It caused celebration in other people who didn't think they were worthy to eat with somebody like Jesus. It caused a lot of opposition because of who he ate with. If you read this, if you read the Gospels, what you'll find is Jesus is always eating and drinking. It was his favorite ministry setting. He began his ministry in Cana at a wedding feast. There was the feeding of the 4,000, the 5,000. There was the Last Supper, his final meal. And then there was his post-resurrection appearances. What was he doing when he appeared to people after he rose from the dead? He was always eating and drinking with them. And in Revelation 3, Jesus is rebuking a church, but he's saying to them, if you open the door to me, I will come in to be with you, and we will eat, and we will drink together. The meaning of all this is reconciliation, closeness, connection, and unity. All the high points of the Bible end in a meal. This is incredible. When I thought about this week, I'm like, this is true. Think of Eden. God, this is the high point of creation. He created the world, and he said, go and eat. (laughs) He made humanity. He gave them the earth and told them to eat. After the exodus, when Israel entered into covenant relationship with God, they received the Ten Commandments. What are we told that happened? It's, It's told that the elders of Israel joined Moses on the mountain with God, and it says in Exodus 24, 11, they ate and they drank in the presence of God. And in the last book of the Bible, when Jesus returns, he returns to have a wedding feast with his bride, the church. That's just a very, very small taste, pun intended there, a small taste of what the Bible teaches when it comes to eating and drinking and how the Bible presents the end goal, the grand finale, the purpose of life as eating and drinking 
as feasting, as relating to God in closeness and connection, as receiving his approval and enjoying relationship with him. So eating and drinking throughout the Bible and for Jesus was not a means to something else. It is the goal of everything else. There's an author named Jonathan Gibson. We're doing this series on liturgy. I've been reading one of his books. What he does is collect hundreds of years of liturgy in this giant 700-page book. So he's got all these different liturgies in there, and he breaks down, based on these historic liturgies, there's just three essentials to the Bible's teaching on liturgy. It goes like this. There's call to worship through his word. There's our response in faith and love. And then there's a fellowship meal of union, communion and joy in God's presence. That's the end of it all, the purpose of it all, the goal of it all. Like I said, in our culture, meals can be very functional. We wine and dine clients in order to get their business, to make a deal. We have working lunches to get stuff done. We eat on the go. Food is a means to an end, but in the Bible, food is the end. A fellowship meal represents closeness, closeness, connection, communion, and relating to the God who made us. So eating and drinking, which is what we do in the Lord's Supper, and is the clearest of all the liturgies that Jesus gave to us. He said, do this. Get bread, get wine, and do it. Eat and drink to remember the goal, to remember why anything exists, to remember why we exist, to remember God's purpose in everything that he does in order to get us to the end goal of closeness, relationship, and joy in his presence. And for some of us, that's really all we need to hear this morning, that the end goal of life is not our productivity, what we can produce, it's not our performance, how well we've done today or this week, that the end goal is fellowship and connection with the God who made us. With all this in mind, now I want to look at the specifics of this text. That's all in the background on why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But there are some specifics here that are very important. And I want to go through and pick out some of the key phrases here in these two chapters as we do this. So first, eating and drinking the Lord's Supper. I want to start with the significance of the name. This meal in different traditions goes by different names. Some people call it communion. Some call it the Eucharist. All highlight a different aspect of the meaning of this meal. But the Lord's Supper is probably the most directly biblical as we've seen in this text and the best place to start as we consider the meaning of this meal. In chapter 11, verse 20, Paul says, when you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. Now Paul is rebuking them about how they are doing the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but for now, I just want you to notice the contrast here. Two kinds of suppers are listed. The Lord's Supper and our own supper. The Lord's Supper. What does that mean? 
What's the difference between the Lord's Supper, Paul's saying, and somebody's own supper? What's the difference? On our own supper, we bring the food, and that was, that's what was happening in Corinth. People were bringing their food and serving it to themselves. We are the host of our own suppers. The Lord's Supper means that the Lord, Jesus, is the host. He provides the meal. It's interesting that very few things in the Bible are called the Lord's. The Lord's this or that. But here in these two chapters we see a supper is called the Lord's. A table is called the Lord's in verse 21 of chapter 10. And the cup is called the Lord's. Let me share an illustration. If you get an evite from me and it says you are invited to Eric's supper, what does that mean? It means I'm the host of that supper. I am going to provide the meal and you would expect that I would be there to serve the meal. So if you show up and I'm not there, then you go, wait a minute, I thought this was Eric's supper. Where is Eric? This gets to the heart of why this meal is called the Lord's Supper and the meaning of this meal. First and foremost, the Lord's Supper is not about what we do to prepare ourselves to come and to take it in a worthy manner. That's important. We'll talk about this later, but only when we understand this first. That is not about us coming in the right spiritual frame of mind. It's are we focused enough? Am I spiritual enough to come and benefit from this? It's not our supper. It's first and foremost his supper, his table, his cup, and he is present at his supper. That's what this is saying. What happens here happens not because what's in our mind or what's in our heart or our actions. It's because he is here. Spiritually, yet truly, and really here. He's present at his supper. He is really present to meet with us as the host. Next slide. Eating and drinking my body and my blood. Look at verses 24 and 25. Paul recounts the words of Jesus when he established this meal. He said, this is my body. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. We call these the words of institution because those words that Jesus spoke over this meal are what makes this meal powerful and meaningful and special. When Jesus said those two words, this is, this is my body, this is my blood, he transformed this meal into something more than just ordinary bread and wine. That much is clear. This is. Think about those two words. Those are powerful words. When I say, this is my shirt, you know, this is my folder, I'm not saying this represents my shirt, this symbolizes my folder. I'm saying something more than that. I'm saying, this is. This is where a lot of the questions come up. This is where a lot of the disputes and the discussion has come up throughout the history of the church. What happens? Does something happen to this bread? Does something happen to these cups that we have here that we serve? Is it just bread and wine or something more? Now, there is a lot of mystery to those questions, and I can't solve all those mysteries, and I don't think we're intended to. There's a lot of mystery, like the mystery of a God who can become one of us. And I think there's 
meant to be mystery that we hold on to, but there's also meant to be simplicity here so that anyone can understand what happens at this meal. At the time, bread and wine represented the two main staples of human sustenance. They represented the two main gifts that God has given humanity in creation to live and survive. This was uh, the table blessing or the table prayer in a faithful Jewish home at the time. Two things were said. Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, who brought bread from the earth. And blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth fruit from the vine. So every Jewish household at every meal that they celebrated heard those prayers being prayed. Many every single day. These are the gifts for human life and sustenance. So here's a quick question. Everybody here, you know how to eat and drink, right? And you know what happens when you eat and when you drink. And just as bread and wine are God's gifts to nourish and strengthen us physically. This meal is God's gift to nourish and strengthen us spiritually. We know what happens when we don't eat and drink. We become weak, we become malnourished, we become tired and weary and hangry, and we're not ourselves. But when we do eat and drink, we're strengthened, we're nourished, we are renewed to go out and live our life in the world. That's what happens here. Jesus meets us to give us spiritual strength and nourishment. And sometimes all the mystery, we overcomplicate it. This is bread and wine. This is sustenance. This is nourishment. And this is how the strength of the life and death of Jesus gets inside of us. We have a saying, you are what you eat, right? And it's very literally true. When you eat anything, those cells and molecules that go into your body and they get digested and absorbed and all that stuff, and they are you. They become your cells. They become your body. They get into your blood. That's spiritually true here. Two mysterious yet simple words. This is my body. This is my blood. When we take those mysterious words and we attach them to the most personal words here in the words of institution, this is my body, which is for you. That's when this meal takes on power for us, each one of us personally. Every time we hear those two words, for you, we are taken to the very heart, to the very center of the gospel, the Christian faith. And what makes Jesus different than any other founder of any belief system or religion? Every other belief system says, when you come to worship, when you come into the presence of God, what you do and what you bring is for God. What do you do for God? What is your act of worship and sacrifice for God? Here, the exact reverse opposite is being told to us. When we come into the presence of God, we are being told, this is what this God has done for you in Jesus Christ. 
And if he gave me his body and blood, if this is for me, then he has given me everything, his life. I am loved. I am secure. And because of that, I can do anything he asks. He has given me, for me personally, everything. And from there, we move out and say, Jesus, what is it that you want me to do for you? It's the exact reverse. It's the exact reverse of every other belief system that says you do for God, he'll do for you. Here at the meal, we are told and we are reminded time and time again, it is what Jesus has done for us. And out of that, we live for him. Next phrase. Eating and drinking in remembrance of me. So the background of the Lord's Supper is the Jewish Passover feast. At the Passover meal with his disciples before Jesus died, he transformed the most important biblical meal, the most important biblical feast, into his meal. He said, now this is my supper. And this is the background for the statement that Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. At the institution of the Passover, God told the people of Israel, this day is to be a memorial day or a day of remembrance for you. And you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statue. Exodus 12, 14. In the Bible, remembering is not simply mental recall of facts and information. It's much, much more than that. As a part of the liturgy of the Passover that God gave to the people of Israel, the host was given these instructions. This is in the next chapter, Exodus 13. They're told to do this. On that day of the feast, explain to your children, this is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. All the generations were to say these words. Only one generation experienced that. Only one generation was taken out of Egypt and crossed through the Red Sea. But every generation was to say these words. This is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. All the generations were to remember that as if they were there. To remember then is to participate in the past. Say, this happened for me as if I was there. And is to bring the events of the past that truly and really happened into the present and all their meaning and all their significance. One way the Bible describes our core spiritual problem is as forgetting. It's when something besides Jesus is in the forefront of our minds, at the center of our attention. If we remember Jesus, who he is and what he's done, the Bible says if we remembered him all the time, if he was in the center of our attention, if he was in the forefront of our minds, then our lives will look much, much different. But we are forgetful. We suffer from spiritual amnesia. The word here for remember is the word anamnesis. That's where we get the word amnesia from. And this meal is given to us that we might be cured of that spiritual amnesia. Now, some of the best movies, I think, are about amnesia. If you can think of some. I thought of Captain Marvel. You know that movie? She forgot who she was. Memory wipe. 
Born Identity, another Marvel movie, The Winter Soldier, right? Bucky Barnes, he forgets who he was. Dory from Nemo, and one of my favorites, Fifty First Dates with uh, Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. So funny. They all sh- very different movies, but they all share a common thread. What happens when you f- lose your memory? What happens when you suffer from amnesia? You have an identity crisis. You don't know who you are. In a lot of these movies, the same plot line happens again and again. People are trying to say, don't you remember? This is who you are. This is what you need to do. This is, this is who you are. This is who I am. I'm your husband or whatever. This is your life and your family. And none of it ever works until they regain their memory. When they remember who they are, then they're able to live out that identity. And this is exactly what is meant to happen here. We remember Jesus and what he has done for us. And in doing so, we remember who we are. Identity precedes imperative. Before we can do the things God calls us to do, we need to remember who we are. And we do so at this meal. Two more phrases, eating and drinking, the one bread. Chapter 10, verse 17, it's in the bulletin there. It says, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share one bread. In chapter 11, verse 17, skipping forward, but Paul says, in giving you this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. So this is a pretty serious issue. He's saying, you're getting together in church And it's not helping. It's making things worse. What's going on? What was happening there? This is what was happening. It had everything to do with the Lord's Supper. Those who were wealthy and rich in the community in Corinth, they were having their own private Lord's Supper. They would come with an elaborate feast. As you read this, it's described. But the people who were poorer, most likely they were household servants and slaves. They could not come until they were done with their work for the day. But the rich and the wealthy were like... We're not waiting for them. We are going to have our own feast, and they would come later and have a meager feast with each other. And Paul is saying to them, those of you who think you can benefit from the body of Christ at this table, apart from the body of Christ as the church, you are mistaken. These things are inseparable That is impossible. You cannot gain the benefit of this table apart from the community of the church. If you neglect or ignore or divide the church, this is the one thing Paul says that makes a Christian unworthy. You should not come to this table, Paul says, if you're neglecting your responsibility to love other people in the body of Christ. And Paul has some very serious words that we read later, that even in this church, there were consequences, there was judgment, and God takes it very seriously when we divide these two things. This could be a whole sermon in and of itself, but a quick word of application. The Lord's Supper doesn't just symbolize our unity as Christians when Paul says, this is the one bread. It's not just a symbol of our unity that we share because we all share faith in Jesus. It actually builds 
that unity. It actually strengthens that unity when we partake of this bread and this wine together. And so for us, in the season that we're in with church, as we're all trying to figure out how do we live back into a rhythm of gathering as the church after COVID and all that disruption, Paul is saying to opt out of embodied and in-person worship. With all of its messiness, this was messy. With all of its awkwardness, this was very awkward community, very different people. And with all of the differences that we might have with one another, to opt out of the embodied community is to opt out of Jesus, his presence, meeting with him, the strength and the nourishment that he wants to provide to us in this meal, remembering who we are and remembering that we are called into community with each other and only in this community can we experience all that Jesus has for us. And so, all of us need to consider when we're making the choice to live stream not out of necessity, but out of choice, and I have to say this directly, but gently and lovingly. Think about what we are opting out of. It's messy, awkward, and it can be difficult. But this meal shows us you cannot separate Jesus from his church. Eating and drinking the one bread, lastly. Eating and drinking until he comes. In verse 26, Paul says, these were the words of Jesus, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here at this table, it's like all the aspects of time converge into one place. We are called to look back to the past. Remembering what happened in the past was accomplished and it happened for us as if we were there in the death of Christ. In his life given for us, and his resurrection from the dead, we die to sin and all of its consequences. And we rise in new life. So we look back. And we receive what Jesus wants to do and the strength he wants to give us in the present. So there is the past and the present. But Paul says here there's also, according to the words of Jesus, the future aspect. We look ahead to the future of what Jesus will do. And very simply, it says he will come. This meal, then, is a foretaste. It's an appetizer. And if it's a foretaste and an appetizer, if it's the first course of what is to come, then, friends, no matter what is happening in your life, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how dark it gets, when it feels so long, when it feels so heavy, when it feels like we cannot endure, here we remember he is coming. We can wait. We can live in hope. Isaiah 25 describes this hope. It says, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Sounds like a good, good meal. 
and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. At this table, we are told, this day will happen. It is a guarantee. It will be worth the wait. We will eat and drink with him, made whole in his presence forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you've given us the gift of this table. And I pray as we come to this table that you would enable each one of us to come with open hearts of faith. There may be things we don't fully comprehend or understand. But I pray you would help us set those aside and come expectant and come trusting that what you have said is true. That you will be here, Lord Jesus, to meet with us. That where we are weak and weary and tired, you will strengthen us. That we, where we have forgotten who we are and why we're here, that we would remember that you would build us more into a church that loves, welcomes, and receives one another, and that you'd give us strength to endure. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.